It's old-timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we are here with your historical true crime that's coming straight out of one of our listeners' towns. And uh, I'm going to tell Amber a tale of mysterious notes, several dozen beautiful women, and uh, more tangentially related deaths and disappearances than you can shake a dental pick at. Ooh, all right, all I right. I chose that for a reason. <laughs> I, I can, ab- I, I imagine, yeah. So uh, let me tell you a story real fast. Yes, I need to hear a story from you uh, about your child. Yes, yes. Uh, my, my child has coined a new phrase called murder accident. <laughs> uh, so we're at swim practice and she's with her little swim buddy. And swim buddy usually gets dropped off by the grandparents. So I've never met this, this friend's parents well, this particular time this week, um, the father brought this child, and um, this man, God love him, has uh, is missing a leg and is missing an arm. And the leg is very obvious because he's wearing shorts. And so, like, it's super apparent. I don't even pay attention to it. I'm talking to him. Really nice guy. And our kids are getting along famously. They do their swim lesson. They come out. We get dressed. We go to leave. Now the father is back to pick up his daughter. And is standing right by the first set of doors that you have to exit the the pool area. And, of course, my daughter. Excuse me, sir. What has happened to your leg? And this guy takes it like a complete champ. And is just like, well, you know what? I was a bad kid. And I didn't listen to my dad. So you should always listen to your dad. (laughs) And, like, I'm trying to shove her out the door. Because she, this is not good enough for her. She's, she needs more information. And so she's trying to continue talking to him while I'm yanking her ass out the door. I get out that door, and she goes, that's not true. This man is still within an earshot, by the way. That's not true. His daughter told me it was a murder accident. <laughs> and so in my head, I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. Whatever. And so like, I'm just like trying to br- like get her the hell away from him because he's already taken like a champ. I'm sure he doesn't want to tell us anymore. And I get her shoved out the second set of doors. And she's still demanding that it was a murder accident. (laughs) And like yelling this now, like we are yelling this in the parking lot of the Y. There are people around that are staring as I'm trying to drag her (laughs) to the van and she just keeps screaming, murder accident. And I was like, I'm still in the parking lot. I'm like, those words don't even make sense together. Get in the van. And so, like, I get her in the van, and I get in the van, and I close the door, and I'm like, okay, now that we are in private, please explain to me what in the heck is a murder accident? <laughs> because those words in my head don't go together. And she's, she goes, well, somebody tried to murder him and didn't. <laughs> murder accident. I'm like, oh, my God. Attempted murder is now murder accident. Okay. And she's like, I know, because his daughter told me it was a murder accident. Somebody tried to kill him and didn't, and then that guy's in prison now. (laughs) I'm like, okay. So uh, now my favorite phrase is going to be murder accident when you don't successfully murder somebody. (laughs) Or just when you try to do something in general and you fail. It's an accident. Man, did you see that? (laughs) Creme brulee, she tried to pull off. It was a real murder accident. Yep. <laughs> murder accident. 
God, I tried to do this podcast and it just went horribly. What a murder accident. <laughs> so yeah, that is my new favorite phraseology is that murder accident. I love it. I love the things that your children come up with. Yeah, I mean, she's seven. She's, she's going to be dark. Like, I already know. <laughs> she's giving you such good material and it's only going to improve. I know. I can't wait. <laughs> things that come out of these kids' mouths is amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful. Tried to kill him, but didn't. Murder accident. Okay. It was a murder accident in the first degree. I love it. I love it. I it, There's such an innocence to it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oops, I didn't murder you. <laughs> and you know what? The thing that was really cracking me up the whole time is she didn't even recognize that he was missing an arm. She was so obsessed with the leg hmm. that completely missed the fact that he had a whole other limb not there. Just never even noticed. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I am a little hung up on how he lost his arm and leg, but none of my business. Yeah, not my business. Not my business. Not my circus, not my monkeys, not going to ask people how they, how they lost things. Like, if you want to tell me, I'm all yours, man. I am curious. Everybody's curious. But, like, you don't walk up to somebody that is, like, in a wheelchair, like, how'd you get there? Like, it's, it's just not proper. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's very much one of those things where, you know, if you've been within spitting distance of a child you've experienced some of their weird word vomit that can be incredibly embarrassing. Like when my, my little brother was younger and I was in my teens and actually I think it was in college and he, uh, I, I was taking him somewhere and he looks at this woman he sees in the alleyway as we're like heading to my car and he's, he just like tugs my hand and sissy, why is she so fat? They do that all the time. Nice and loud. Lady turns around and glares at us. I'm like, no, honey, no, mm, let's no, go. They do, they do that. They call it like they see it. But just imagine just like walking around to strangers and being like, tell me about the biggest trauma you've ever had in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> tell me about the worst day you ever had. I want to know. I'm guessing it's that day, but I, prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to tell you about somebody's worst day here, actually. Let's hear it. So, uh, yes, uh, this is the story of Dr. A. Leonard Seaver. Was he a dentist by chance? He was, in fact, a prominent dentist and man about town in Pasadena, California, hometown of listener Regan Hudson. All right. Hey, Regan. Long time listener, too. He's been with us since, like, the beginning. <laughs> OG. Practically, <laughs> OG listener. So, all right, Dr. A. Leonard Seaver, this guy, I can't wait to tell you about this guy. All right, he, he had quite the persona. So he was born, depending, uh, either 1889 or 1893. Uh, his name was uh, Leopold Siv when he was born in Libau, which was uh, then in Russia, but is now part of Latvia. And he came over to the United States with his parents when he was a kid. There was a lot of emigration from Eastern Europe during that time period for about like a period of like 20, 30 years especially Eastern European Jews, because there was a lot of oppression and segregation and just horrifying things going no, on. No, not I, for the Jews. Really? I mean, I know. It just I, just knocked me right off my feet Crazy. to hear that anybody would torment them in terrible, terrible ways. Um, and yeah, that led to what the Library of Congress calls, quote, a wave of state-sponsored murder and destruction, which does not sound like a good time. No, no, no it does not. In the 1880s. So, yeah, I can't blame them for wanting to uh, skedaddle out of there. Now, uh, Leonard, as he eventually became, was the second youngest of six children. 
uh, when he came over to the United States, he made quite a success of himself. He went to the University of Michigan, graduated in 1916, and he also got naturalized as a U.S. citizen. Good for him. Yeah, he changed his name to Leonard Seaver at some point. Interestingly, the rest of his family kept their old name, kept Seave as their name, and he was the only one who changed. I, I, I really find that telling about who he was as a person, just that it, he was determined to, not, not that he was like, oh, I must become American, but more that he wanted to distinguish himself. There's also the fact that his entire family stayed on the East Coast, most of them around New York and uh, a couple in Baltimore. And meanwhile, he moved all the way over to California. Yeah, he's definitely somebody that wants to differentiate himself from his family, where it sounds like the rest of his family are like, no, we're proud of our roots. Yeah, and either one is fine. I'm just saying that you're going to see a lot of differentiation from other people from this gentleman. <laughs> so uh, he served in the military in the American Expeditionary Forces in World War I. There's actually an undated photo of him in a military uniform with a young woman who's also in a military uniform. Um, he, it's basically like the, the standard doughboy uniform that you would see in any World War I movie. There so, you go. Yeah. And, I mean, she's not named, but as far as where she is enlisted, uh, I was able to figure out that probably uh, she was in the Navy. Because there was no provision for women's uniforms at that point in time. Women were given guidelines and told to buy or make their uniforms. So generally a lot of like groups, group pictures, they'll look mostly the same because they probably all helped each other out, shared fabric, etc. But, uh, you know, this particular division would look different from this division or whatever, however they divide people. <laughs> yeah, based on what they had available to make their uniform. Yeah, exactly. So another thing about uh, Leonard Seaver from his war days is that friends said he had quite a fear of firearms. It bordered on a phobia. And, yeah, uh, that's, you should join the military if you're afraid of firearms. That well, makes well sense. it was thought that that didn't come along until after his time in the military. Okay, fair. Lots of guns there and uh, might be enough to stick with you sometimes, I would imagine. And also we didn't know that PTSD was even a thing. Mm. So after that, he moved over to California to Pasadena and studied dentistry at uh, the University of Southern California. Now, he did have all those other siblings. They were all still alive. But by 1933, the only one that anybody knew about was his sister, Mrs. Rose Dinkowitz of Norwalk, Connecticut. Um, so yeah, everybody's, I'm pretty sure everybody lived on the East Coast just because that's where they were buried. Uh, a lot of them even Makes in the same, yeah, same cemetery. So He set up a practice in Pasadena, his, his own little dentistry practice. And now he had a roommate, uh, Dr. Francis P. Weston. That name is familiar to Amber and to our patrons, probably just vaguely. But we had one of our bonus episodes that we just recorded for over on the Patreon and I read some old-timey newspaper stories, and a couple of them were about this Dr. Francis Weston in California who pumped a kid's stomach when he swallowed uh, sunscreen, or what passed for sunscreen back then, because apparently it was mostly carbolic acid. <laughs> Put the lotion on the skin, or else you get the hose again. I guess so. The hose down your throat. Yeah. <laughs> 
very well. Yeah, you set that right up. <laughs> I don't know if you intended it or not, but I, it, either way it works. <laughs> We're just going to go with it was on purpose. Sure. So yeah, he, he did a lot of that. He was working in the emergency department. Um, I went down in, in a little bit of rabbit hole with him because I was trying to figure out this living situation. Because at first I thought it might be one of those cases of, despite some of the things we're going to hear about Dr. Leonard Seaver, I still wondered, is it one of those cases of bachelor roommates? Brown chicken, brown cow. Exactly, yeah. So I wasn't sure if that was, you know, a, it was kind of a cover. Why did they get bachelor roommates where women got spinsters? I know, right? Spinster sisters. It comes it's from like, something. Oh, they're not sisters. They sure are dead. <laughs> so... I was, I was confused about how this was set up. It seems like he was friends with Dr. Weston and roomed with, like, boarded with him and his wife because Dr. Weston was married. So, I mean, that's not to say there couldn't have been something going on, but once you hear more about Dr. Seaver, he was too busy to be having any sort of affairs in the house. <laughs> I don't a, know. I feel like it would make it awfully convenient. It sure would, but, lo, oh, he was a busy man. He was a busy 15 man. 15 minutes, nothing. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Okay. A lot of people that are involved in this story or that know the principal characters, everybody ended up having their own sort of drama that year that may probably wasn't related to the actual crime here, but it's just so weird how everybody's like showing up in the papers. They're not just disappearing. So August 1933, Dr. Weston, uh, after showing up in the newspapers with all these amazing tales of his medical prowess in the emergency department, uh, he was let go because of what seemed like some sort of conflict with the department head. And people were trying to get him back in the hospital. Like the, the Moose Club sent a letter to like the city trying to get him back in. Um, but that was uh, not happening. And also in April 1934, he lost his special police commission, which he was sometimes referred to as the police surgeon. So they're, you know, they're standby doctor, I guess. I wonder what he did to mess up so bad. Yeah, I don't know. They said they were culling. They were trying to reduce the numbers because it, it allowed non, you know, it allowed civilians to carry a gun and a badge. So they were trying to cut down on that a little bit. Yeah. That's we what they said We went back and looked and decided this was not a good idea. Yeah. We don't know what we were thinking. It's like when the IT department reaches out and be like, do you really need the Microsoft suite? Because we're trying to cut back those numbers. <laughs> Budget's gone down a little bit. We're going to need you not to walk around with a gun anymore. Yeah, yeah. They probably just figured out it was a bad idea. And they're like, we're just going to take these back now. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, who knows what started that. But it's just so strange. Everybody's drama. You're not going to believe it. But back to Dr. Seaver, roommate of Dr. Weston. Uh, the Santa Cruz Evening News called him, quote, a well-set-up, handsome, gentlemanly fellow who worshipped music. That was Dr. Seaver when he wasn't courting some beautiful woman. He spent all his spare time studying, preparing himself for work at the Harvard Law School. So he was leaning towards leaving dentistry to study law. And we have, okay, I've had a little treasure trove when I was researching this case. UCLA has an entire archive of forensic history photographs. Oh. Amazing. There's like four pages of photographs related to this case. Guest books from his house. Uh, his like address book, pages from that. 
neat. Like, it's absolutely insane. And one of the things was this three-page autobiographical statement he had written about himself. Wow. So I have his own words. I actually, it, I'm just amazed how much I'm able to find out about somebody here from himself. It's, it's a nice change of pace. So when talking about that, how he was leaning towards studying law, he said, my sense of fair play and justice is calling me rapidly to the study of law. So a little shift in his career path. Okay, little shift, but this always makes me concerned. And this is why. You know in college, a lot of the girls that are studying psychology are so they can mask their own mental illness better. And so when you tell me that you want to study law, and this is a, a true crime case, so somebody did the crimes, I'm starting to think that maybe he wants to know how to mask his crimes better. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. I mean, who knows? I, I do want to state for the psychology majors and psychologists who are getting mad at us right now. For many of you, it's more like, I've suffered from mental illness. I want to help other people with mental illness. <laughs> okay, that, that might be fair. That was just my college experience. Amber took the far more cynical view. <laughs> I tend to be more cynical. I apologize. But, but like, And why are we singling out women? <laughs> So that is what I distinctly remember from my psychology class. Because, like, people would talk to me and be like, yeah, well, I'm bulimic. And I was, like, maybe I should rephrase. They want to understand their own mental illness better. And it was, it was, women actually talk about feelings, men don't. That's true. I mean, to, to go a, a, a whole different sexist route, yes. <laughs> we're, we're picking all the sexist routes, and that's fine. <laughs> I was just there for a prereq, so I don't know. Like, I didn't belong with, with that, that whole group of people. <laughs> don't but, cancel uh, us. We just paid for an LLC. <laughs> no, like, I don't. <laughs> it's okay. I it's believe okay. the worst in everybody. I think, in fairness. I, I think it's funny because we, we all have, I don't know, um, maybe things about, like, our, our mindset that we don't even recognize until somebody else is like, wait a second. Why do you think all women psychology majors are trying to mask their mental illness? There's not a lot of male psychology majors. I didn't know too many psych majors during college, actually. I can't even remember. Most of them were communications and English and stuff like that. I okay. mean, you know, some like some in the sciences, but mostly. Quick side note, though. Um, at the time that I was in this class, I also slept through most of it. And uh, the psychology professor would use me in, as an example of sleep deprivation. <laughs> um, Exhibit A, students, here we have Amber, the walking demonstration of why you should get a good night's sleep. Well, yeah, because he, he, he actually used me because I fell asleep in the class one day. And he goes, I want everyone to notice that she never even fell into REM. She went straight into the deep sleep. That is, that is an exact demonstration of what sleep deprivation will get you. You'll have that shorter REM and you'll, ha you'll feel less rested because you're skipping that because your body's just trying to keep you alive. And uh, he, he informed me of that when I woke up at the end of class. <laughs> I was going to ask, how do you know he told you or he said that because you were sleeping? Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> Always make sure that your message got through to every single student. Yeah, because, well, after I woke up, he's like, you need to sleep more. And I'm like, I work, like, three jobs and go to school full time. And, and have a child. Kid. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a lot of sleep that I have. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right, so back to Dr. Sieber. <laughs> that fun digression into <laughs> a variety of paths down Amber's 
twisted mind. I'm just trying to say I'm not sexist. I'm just as fucked up as everybody else. <laughs> there just you go. throwing it out there. <laughs> You're fucked up? Well, so are we. <laughs> Can't be mad at us for that. So anyhow. Um, so yes, I, I mentioned in the quote, uh, he worshipped music. Yes, he really did. He used his love of music even in his profession. He kept a phonograph in his dental office behind some lovely purple velvet drapes, and he would play classical music to keep patients calm. The Santa Cruz Evening News put it wonderfully, I think, and also slightly painfully, grinding at molars to the rhythm of a symphony orchestra playing Beethoven. Kind of makes your teeth hurt a little bit, doesn't it? I don't think I'd enjoy that. Yeah, I mean, I like Beethoven, so... I'm more of a Bach girl, though. soothing music for a while I grind your teeth away. All you're going to hear is the drill. It's only for the dentist. Especially a 1930s drill. (laughs) It's probably like a jackhammer in your mouth. It might actually be a small jackhammer. Probably, yeah. So, and his love of music didn't stop at listening to it or playing it for his patients. He played violin and wrote love songs, too. I, too, played the violin. Uh, He said himself in his autobiographical statement, Music, it makes me glad, it makes me sad. It is more than a hobby. I am a slave to it. It is a sort of slavery that is very pleasing. I mean, I guess you have to really get into the metaphorical for any sort of slavery to be pleasing. (laughs) Unless uh, that's a thing for you. (laughs) I I don't. mm. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. So. I would say that a lot of people would disagree. Yeah, a great deal of people. The vast, vast majority, probably. So uh, he also loved languages and Russian and Latvian art. He was a prolific reader, uh, always the type to always have a, a book on hand, no matter where he was. So, you know, if I have a few minutes to spare, I'll just do a little bit of reading. He's a nerd. And he's our people. <laughs> uh, some articles also mention, although it's always... In the few articles where it's mentioned, it's put very obliquely. Uh, an interest in the, quote, mystic arts. Oh, no. It never really goes further than that. It's just he had an interest in the mystic arts, and he was just kind of like on a different spiritual plane. Never missed a palm reading. <laughs> now, um, one thing that I found really interesting about that autobiographical profile um, I couldn't, and this was, that was written in September 1933. I couldn't tell whether it was, he was just like kind of writing short responses to prompts, as in like, what's your profession, where were you born, that kind of stuff, um, or whether he made those up himself. And that was just, you know, like part of how he decided to organize it. Um, it could have been an assignment. An assignment of some kind, or maybe an autobiographical sketch for his entrance to Harvard, if that was something they required. Yeah, because a, a lot of that stuff would require essays. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he was just doing, like, writing prompts yeah, to, it was to just, write a, an entrance exam. It was just hard thing. to tell whether this one section was something that he included or whether it was a question being asked. So did he choose it? Or, but it didn't matter because it was a section called Strange Incidents. And he left it blank. You can sort of see something in pencil written underneath it, uh, but that seems more like edits to the next section because this was typewritten and then um, edited with a pencil. Oh, all right. So he was, it was something that he was, it, it was important that he get it right and have it look professional, I guess. So, all right, well, let's talk about the ladies. 
Because Dr. Seaver didn't just love music and books and languages, he loved the ladies. Love. He was a cunning linguist. He was quite the cunning linguist. In uh, both his, well, <laughs> he loved the ladies in both his personal life and his professional life. Women figured prominently among his patients, with many of them hailing from Pasadena's Millionaire Row. Ooh, we like the rich ladies. Oh, did he? And he spent a lot of time with ladies. Investigators looked at the records at his dental practice and found that he had a veritable revolving door of office assistants. Um, all were women or girls. Uh, 17 of them in total had traipsed in and out of the good dentist's life and payroll over just three years. That's a pretty high turnover rate. It is. That's like restaurant-level turnover. <laughs> I wonder what his bend-over rate was. <laughs> yeah. Now, on average, that's a new assistant about every two months. And uh, it, it was said that he was temperamental and difficult to work for. Yeah, he's not even giving, he's not giving enough time to get them trained properly before he's firing them from the sounds of it. Yeah, or before they, they up and quit because he's, he's impatient or yells at them or something. It, we don't really know. We just hear temperamental. And um, a few of them even uh, lasted just a couple hours. So you got to think maybe it's more him than them. Yeah. Fuck this. I'm out. Yeah. If uh, you smell dog shit everywhere you go, check your shoe. Yeah. So uh, many of these assistants were, in fact, married, which is, is fine. I mean, they can have jobs, too. But the papers did seem to kind of just very, very euphemistically imply that maybe they were more than assistants. You know, the bent over rate. Yeah. So uh, one of them actually had to resign after just three weeks because... Uh, she attended a college, and the college investigated Seaver's references. He apparently had to give references to hire her and found something they didn't like. So no word on what that was. There was just something in his history that they were like, yeah, yeah, nix this. Yeah, get her out of there. Don't know. And uh, the press also mentioned, quote, others who have been at the office without working there, which to me I think is a euphemism for he boinked them in the dentist's chair. Drilled them in the chair? Yeah, drilled them. Drilled them in the chair, yeah. So. Gave and, him a thorough flossing. Now, as for his social life, he was very much part of society, and, and we'll get to that. But um, his, as far as where he spent his time, his housemate said he frequently stayed out all night and offered no explanation upon returning. Now, you might think he's out romancing some of these Drilling some of these girls. Uh, but a lot of people saw him out just wandering at night. Just far away from home. Just kind of... Like a sane person. He just liked to go for walks. Uh, but another gal pal of his said that actually he liked to wander the underworld district and visit strange bohemian cafes, quote, where he would seek acquaintances with fe feminine waifs just to talk to them. That's from the <laughs> Miami News. I'm sure that was just talking. So, yes, there's this kind of like, uh, he was definitely a, a mystery. Even the people who knew him didn't really know him. They didn't know all parts of him, at least. So, uh, a movie extra named Eleanor Johnson told the press that Dr. Seaver, quote, would try to make love to every woman he went out with. Everything he did, he did for show. He told me he liked to take me fine places because I was young and beautiful and focused attention on him. I'm pretty enough to go out with them, neener, neener, neener. <laughs> but if, if it's 
if she's reporting accurately what he said to her, you know, I like to take you places because you're so young and pretty that everybody has to look at us. If that's another thing that tells you a lot about his personality. Yeah. You are a trophy on my arm. Exactly. Yeah. And I want people to look at me. Look at me, everyone. And my trophy, I suppose. So uh, Eleanor said that he had proposed to her a bunch of times, even though uh, she told him flat out she wasn't in love with him. And he also lied about his age. He claimed to be 28 when he was actually in his late 30s, you know, depending on whether he was born in 89 or 93. Uh, She also said that he had this sort of strange moodiness, and it, it scared her. She was never entirely sure what to expect, you know. He could turn on a dime, maybe. Um, In fact, a colleague said, quote, he could turn his charm on and off like a faucet. He was a man of many and varied moods. Okay, so he sounds like somebody that should probably be medicated. I mean, he's just a little bit, he's compartmentalized, I think. He's very compartmentalized. He sounds like a sociopath. (laughs) Well, we don't know. So some of his lady friends described him as, quote, a perfect gentleman so upright that he resented off-color stories told in mixed company. Oh, he would not enjoy us. No, he would not enjoy us. Um, sorry, sorry, Dr. Seaver, but uh, we're, we're doing this, and, you know, we've already been off-color, so. But he had blurted out at one point that he had, quote, a purple secret, which if you try to Google purple secret, you just come up with this book that I actually really want to read about... Um, a a physical disease that passed down through the English royal family. Uh, I couldn't find anything but that. Amber is now immediately Googling. She feels like she has to rise to the challenge. Yes. Anytime there's a challenge, I want to know. (laughs) So, yeah. The papers did give an explanation for it. Okay. They said it was a, a love child existed somewhere, perhaps. Perhaps. But he really didn't talk about his past too much. There were some people who got the impression that he recently had experienced some romantic disappointment. Uh, a fellow doctor said that he, uh, Seaver told him he'd lost all faith in women because his main lady, whoever she was, nobody knew, had cheated on him. Okay, so of all the things we know about him, we know that he uh, loves the women and definitely um, younger But he also sort of liked things that women stereotypically liked. So there is no doubt that Dr. Leonard Seaver was strongly attracted to young and pretty women, yet always his ardor was that of the aesthete, that is a hard word to say, rather than the lover. He built himself air castles on a rare cultural plane and invited those he knew and cared for to dwell there with him. He had feminine tastes without being effeminate. He would attend women's club meetings and women's teas and women's social functions, sometimes as the only man among them. He loved fine paintings, jewels, and even old lace and feminine trinkets. He's a little magpie. Yeah. Yeah, he might be. Yeah. So let's talk about his uh, his society work, what, what people in the public knew him for on those, you know, pages about what all the rich people are doing. There's a vibrator called Purple Secret. (laughs) Why am I not surprised? That's actually a really good name. So he was the founder and president of the Artist Student Endowment League, which, quote, fosters and helps young artists through scholarships. And he was a member of the Pasadena Playhouse Association, the Hospital Auxiliary, and treasurer of the 
YMCA Men's Breakfast Club. Then, uh, so we have him, you know, out in society and everybody's hobnobbing and there's some philanthropy in here. And he, he, he loves women, he treats them well. And then we get a couple of stories that hint that maybe we don't know everything. Two Pasadena social organizations had asked him to resign because of his attentions to women. And at another organization, it was said he'd made a remark to a lady guest and got a slap in the face for his trouble. But one way or the other, he was always had at least one woman on the hook, probably five at a time. Uh, and here's a note he wrote to an unnamed lady in 1933. So we have a little bit of his communications with the opposite sex. Try this crossword puzzle. Four-lettered word begins with K, ends in S. Sometimes it ends in trouble. At times, ends well. Is undignified, is informal, is reasonably misjudged, but is darned sweet and is enclosed herewith. Leonard S. So, it, basically, he's sending her a kiss. Smooches. Smooches. He uh, also said himself that uh, when asked on that biographical sketch about something that set him apart, uh, that he didn't send the usual Christmas card. Instead, he sent, quote, a message involving principles of ethics or a bit of philosophy, usually in connection with a photographic reproduction of a well-known painting or a piece of sculpture. And I mail the message to as many of my friends and patients as my spare change for postage will permit. And then said that he usually sent around 1300 Hmm. Yeah, that's spare change. That's a lot of spare change. That's a decent amount of spare change. And he was so interested in this that in September 1933, when he was writing this, he already had themes planned for the next few years. Wow. For his Christmas cards, yeah. I'm just happy there's a decorated tree in my house. And I was mainly the supervisor and maker of mulled wine because of my, you know, root surgeries. I, 1,300 Christmas cards. I've never even sent a single one. <laughs> I send, if I send 10, I'm like, oh my God, that was exhausting. I need a nap. I don't think it's I've a, sent out cards since I had to do uh, thank you cards for, the, for a wedding. It's been a couple years, but uh, yeah. Oh gosh. So his, his themes that he had planned were uh, disarmament. Uh, and then one was going to have Rodin's The Thinker, you know, the um, yeah. marble statue, chin on the hand. Um, and then uh, uh, something about Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, along with a plea for a concert of all nations, which I was unclear which version of concert that meant, but knowing his love of music, probably just a lot of nations uh, playing music together. Everybody send me your best string players. Yes. Um, I'm going to need a, a cello, a violin, uh, just a few other things, but send me your best musicians. From every country. It will be a concert of the nations. So basically, he's like, I think of him kind of 1933 Fraser Crane. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting that vibe. It's that kind of, it's that kind of vibe. And, and. Fraser Crane, that man could pull tail. Somehow, yeah. My God, he, I mean. Probably just because it was fictional, frankly. <laughs> I mean, he had women practically lined up at his door for him to mess up relationships with. Like, <laughs> man. It's so, a brown suit. The brown suit is really a, a turn on, I guess. Must be. 
All right, so let's talk about one night in December in Pasadena, just a few weeks before Christmas, actually. December 12th, that night, and then going into the morning of December uh, 13th, it was a stormy, stormy night in California. Rain soaked the grass as Tuesday slipped into Wednesday. I feel like that's a lie. More than three inches of rain fell that night. No, just that anywhere in California has grass. Oh, well, it was 1933. Maybe they did back then. Maybe they did back then, yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, that night, on the night of December 12th, uh, Dr. Seaver was supposed to uh, meet a lady, Mrs. Francis Cohen Cook. Now, you heard the missus, but she is a divorcee, as oh. the papers always rush to tell us. So she was a society type. She was a debutante in 1928 and called, uh, she was called one of the most popular debutantes of the season. Oh. Her life was not without drama. She had a whirlwind courtship that ended in an elopement in 1930. <gasps> Gasp. Well, her mother had heart trouble, it was said. Now they came home and it said, in the, even in the newspapers, it said all was forgiven but a few weeks later, her mother had to be rushed to the hospital after swallowing a quantity of Lysol. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there was more going on than just heart trouble. And, um, yeah, her mother survived. But st oh. still really uh, something. Now, I, I, as a person who is unhappy with both my teeth and my ears, I really hate saying things like this. But when I write them down, I have to read them. And that's not my fault. I didn't do that. You, you wrote it, though. Shh. Okay. Don't tell anyone. Um, that husband of hers, he was all ears and teeth. I'm going to get a sign in. Oh, is there a picture? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. wonderful. Yes. Maybe if I didn't have 70 million tabs open... Beautiful page. There we go. So you can see both him and her, actually. And so here they are. Oh, my. Oh, my. So he looks like if Willy Wonka was a rabbit. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> I don't think he has any lips. He actually has uh, more lips than you would expect. I mean, look at it. He he oh, he has so many so much lips. He looks like he's wearing lipstick. Oh, it does look like he's wearing lipstick, but it also looks like he's completely unable to close his mouth. That there's that, yeah, there is that. <laughs> and she's she's you know she's a, a she's cute very type. Pretty, yeah, she's, she's very pretty. pretty. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they had quite the uh, quite the drama there. Yeah, they they received. It said in the paper that telegraphs were sent to them from home, telling them that they were forgiven. But uh, something, something still wasn't great. Uh, they had a son together who was eight months old when they divorced in 1932 after two years and two weeks of marriage. Now, as far as Frances Cohen Cook and her relationship with Dr. Seaver, uh, it was one of those cases where the newspapers are really telling completely different stories. Um, one article said that she hadn't met him yet. 
And this was like a, a mutual friend had arranged this night as an introduction of sorts. They would uh, attend a gathering together. They were supposed to, I think, go play squash. Um, but in other articles, she said outright that she'd met him a year prior at an athletic club. Okay. So either she knew him for a year or she didn't know him one bit. I would split the difference there and say maybe she met him a year prior, just in passing. Mm-hmm. And then a friend is like, I feel like you two would really get on. So why don't I set you guys up to like go out together and, and actually have a conversation? Because, I mean, there's a lot of people that we've met in passing that I don't really even know their names. But then maybe a friend might be like, I think you guys would be like best friends. So, like, let me set you up to hang out. And you show up and you're like, oh, I saw you at the club. All right. Yeah. Like, especially if you have a mutual friend, you've probably been in the same social situations. And it might be somebody you don't really know. But then as soon as you you have a conversation, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. So you and I were at that same place at the same time a year ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's entirely possible it could have been kind of both, you yeah. know, that they, they both didn't know each other but had, you know, met previously. And it was Mrs. Edna Herbst. Herbst. No idea. Don't know. Hate that name. Don't like it. Don't like it at all. It's, it's Herbst. difficult. Herbst. Herbst. Just her name sounds like a burp. Let's just call her Edna Burp. <laughs> Edna Burps. Um, Mrs. Edna Burps. We are fourth graders. Um, and so Burps. she was the one who they were going to be meeting with and they were going to go and, and play squash, which I still to this day do not know what the hell squash is. I, is it croquet? Is it a card game? Like, <laughs> is it, or is it like racquetball? I, I don't know. Maybe it's like a handball thing. Maybe. I don't know. And nobody, you know what? Let me live in my ignorance. I'm happy there. So, now, there are some tales told of another woman who came to visit him that day at work at his office about an hour before he finished work, rushed in, attractive, dark-haired young woman who dashed breathlessly into his inner office and held an excited, whispered conversation with the man. So keep that in your head. Now, around 6.30 p.m. that night, he left the office with his briefcase and his umbrella in hand. The building had an elevator operator. It was a young lady. And she remembered him saying as he left the elevator, uh, you know, like I said, it's very, very rainy. I may get my feet wet. Would you care if I died? What? I think it's a weird flirting. That? Um, I mean, we, you can try it as a pickup line. I wouldn't recommend it. No, I don't recommend it. It's probably not his best work. Uh, he probably, like, walked out of the building and was like, would you care if I died? Why did I say that? I hope he did. I hope, I he, hope did. he did walk out like, what the fuck? What is wrong with me? <laughs> Note to self. Don't ask women if they'd care if I died if I went out into the rain and got my feet wet. <laughs> what? It just seems silly in retrospect. Sounded better in my head. So yes, so he, uh, he walked from the elevator, through the lobby, and then to the street. Now, a weird parking situation here. It seems like there wasn't any parking around his office. In fact, he would always park three blocks north on Madison Avenue uh, at the Scottish Rite Cathedral. Now, one article says it was behind some... Drawings that were made, illustrations, uh, seem to imply that it was in front of the cathedral. Uh, if you look at it now, um, you can see that 
the parking lot is next to it. So he would most likely park in the parking lot rather than on the street. And I mean, otherwise, why park three blocks away at that same place? Yeah. It would seem like you just find the spot closest to your office. And so it it seemed like also I saw pictures of his car and the building, and it really seemed like it was still on the side. So I'm just going to say it's on the side. Makes sense. Yeah. And he goes to his car. Meanwhile, Frances Cohen Cook had gone out for dinner and on a little drive with her friend, Dr. Carl Wagner. They'd been friends for a long time. He was a a, a kind of renowned surgeon in the area, very up and coming. Now, he knew about her planned date with Dr. Seaver, and he did not approve. I think he thought, you know, this is a man about town. I've seen him, you know, love and lose dozens of other ladies. He's just going to do the same to you. You know, guy can't settle down. And, you know, you've got a kid, so. Probably not a good pairing. Yeah. And the way it's talked about in later articles, it does feel like they maybe had an argument during the drive, uh, Francis Cook and uh, Dr. Wagner. And everybody's kind of delicately trying not to mention it because they don't want that to throw shade his way. And so they go on their drive, chat, discuss, are you? about the whole Dr. Seaver thing. And then he drops her off at her home where she, she's living with her parents now. Uh, either at six o'clock or 6.50. And those were honestly both quotes from her. Direct quotes. We're having trouble keeping our story together. It's really, really, just there's always two choices. And when it comes to when somebody was born, what year? Okay, a four-year difference. I mean, he was either in his... He's in his mid to late 30s. Okay. But when we're talking about times and crimes, it's kind of important. Somewhere in the six o'clock hour. Maybe seven-ish. Yeah. But to that point, how many times do you actually know what time it is? Oh, certainly. Certainly. Although there was a period of time. um, One of the reasons I read that... (laughs) One of the reasons I read that... We have during, I think it was more like Victorian times, but honestly, I don't know. When the watch, especially the pocket watch, became a thing and was a status symbol, everybody actually seemed to know the time more because they were like, hmm, allow me to look at my pocket watch. I am Lord Fancy Pants. I don't even know what fucking day it is half the time. <laughs> I didn't realize it was my own mother's birthday until like, like four o'clock. <laughs> Happy birthday. Happy birthday, mom. <laughs> I just don't know what day it is anymore. So when I went to save the file from our bonus episodes, I was like, and it wrote the date. And I was like, oh, that's my mom's birthday. But like there there are seriously times that like I'll get involved in a task and I will lose hours. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you ask me what time I thought something happened, I might say one o'clock and it was four. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I never understood how without any other sort of evidence, we can take people's word at what time something happened. In, you know, a, a, any sort of case where a crime is involved. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially in this day and age, you have a clock on your laptop, on your phone, on your watch, on your tablet, on your stove, on your microwave. Like, there's timekeeping devices everywhere near us, and I never know what fucking time it is. I know. Same here. And back then, <laughs> it was even worse. You had, like, a wall clock in the hallway. And maybe, maybe 
it needed to be, I don't know, fixed or reset or I don't know what they do with clocks. <laughs> but but call they the lose clock time. Guy. I they, don't know. They lose time over time. Yeah. Call <laughs> the clock guy. They lose time over time. It's really hard to avoid saying time when you're talking about literally how we find out what time it is. Now we know how uh, Cindy Lauper feels. When we talk about time pieces, time after time after time. <laughs> time after time. <laughs> So we're doing a great job of staying on track. Oh, it's fabulous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, there was this plan. They're going to go play squash. She got home at six or six fifty, and their meeting time was supposed to be seven fifteen. So she had time to spare. Was probably already dressed because she dressed for dinner. And so Dr. Wagner drove away, left her at her house. Their meeting time came and went. But Dr. Seaver never came. He never picked Francis up. And she only lived about a mile and a half from his office, about two miles from uh, the Scottish Rite Cathedral where he parked his car. This is not, it's not like he had to drive an hour to get there. He left with plenty of time to spare to possibly even go home and change because he lived in that vicinity as well. So he never showed up, but he was found dead the next morning. In the parking lot? In the parking lot, 4.50 a.m., a milkman found him. Um, Seaver's body was lying uh, in the parking lot of the Scottish Cathedral next to his car. The milkman at first thought he was just a drunk. That seemed to be really popular back then. Eh, it's either a body or a drunk guy, probably a drunk guy. There's more drunk guys than bodies, just statistically speaking. I mean, that's probably true. In our general vicinity, not counting graveyards. Um, where hopefully you don't see the bodies. So you shouldn't. Fingers crossed. Um, but pretty soon the milkman realized, oh no, that's actually uh, a, a dead person. So Dr. Probably S right after he like shook him, like, come on, dude, wake up. <laughs> wake oh, up, buddy. Come on, come on. <laughs> How long you been out here? Oh, shit. So Dr. Seaver lay on top of his umbrella and his briefcase, uh, which had not been touched, hadn't been opened. He actually carried around probably his book that he always carried with him and also music. Just carried sheet music around with him that he was working on. His right pocket was turned inside out. His wallet and his watch were missing. Now, the cause of death, not a mystery at all. Uh, one newspaper described gaping bullet wounds in the head and chest. All right, somebody wasn't playing. And also, this wasn't a robbery. We took the wallet just to try to make it look like a, a robbery. If, if this were a legit robbery, telling you right now that that briefcase would have been gone too because you don't know what's inside of it. Absolutely, yeah. You would have taken everything. That's a Probably fun... Probably the fucking car too. Why not? Yeah, that's a, that briefcase is just a fun present for later. <laughs> well, the thing is that not taking the car was probably a really smart move. I mean, that's fine, but still, you would take the, the briefcase. Well, just because it had rained so much that there was, like, no evidence left at the scene. Very little to actually go on. If he'd taken the car somewhere else and then they found it, they might find a print or something. So there was some speculation that the killer had hidden behind one of the big stone sphinxes that flank the cathedral entrance and shot from there. Maybe hid... Okay, again... I don't think people have the configuration right. They really like to place him close to the sphinxes because some people call it the sphinx case. And But the sphinxes were in front. Like I said, the parking lot was on the side. Maybe you could hide there and then like slip out, but you can't shoot from there. 
Yeah, you could hide there and then follow him. Yeah. So it was, uh, it just kind of drove me nuts. <laughs> Everybody was like, no, we have to get the sphinxes into the picture. When meanwhile, he was on the side of the building and those are in the front. It just, um, playing up some detail just for more drama. Like, they would mention it in the newspaper articles too, like as the sphinxes looked on silently, you know, stuff like that. They were staring straight ahead, motherfucker. There was so much drama. Just gallons and gallons of purple ink spilled in the newspaper. People really liked to get out the big thesaurus and just go to town. <laughs> I don't need one synonym for every word. I need five. Make this really, really bold. Bold. Yeah, it was absolutely nuts. So, um, so the police knew how he died and the general idea of when and where, the who and the why were the big question. This I found to be a really great quote from a newspaper about the case, uh, and I guess all other ones. Following the time-honored police theory of first find the woman in all crimes of violence, they immediately began combing the state. First find the woman. If there's somebody dead, Probably find the woman. a woman involved. So you got to love that. Um, and what they found were brunettes, blondes, redheads, married women, divorcees, the unwed, debutantes, society matrons, actresses, 50 women, all beautiful, desirable, much sought after. I love how you said unwed, like undead, like all of a sudden we've got zombies. <laughs> Absolutely. The unwed. <laughs> the unwed. Watch out. They'll eat your brains. That's why nobody likes a spinster. That's it. That's it right there. <laughs> spinsters are actually the real zombies. There you go. We've solved mysteries. Watch out for your spinster aunt at uh, Christmas time, guys. She might try to eat your brains. She needs her feast too. So, um, but yeah, these are the women that they found associated with him in, in one form or another. Over 50. Over 50 women. Yes. He got around. He got around. So uh, let's talk about the, uh, the who and the why. Now, like I said, there wasn't much evidence on the scene, but in a retrospective, this murder was called the case of 1,000 clues because it, it, it's all clues related to who he was as a person and his life and the people around him. Um, and all the clues seem to point towards a variety of motives. Uh, the criminal underworld... Just a plain old holdup, a crime of passion. Quote, possible motives ranging through jealousy, revenge, extortion, hoodlumism, and fear cropped up wherever investigators turned. Yeah, I mean, okay, so you have 50 women. It could be any one of those 50 women because they were jealous of the other women. Some of them were married or divorced, so it could be those husbands. Or it could just be friends or other suitors that were jealous that you were going after their woman or it could be related to owing someone money, or you know something you're not supposed to know because of the, some association with the underworld. You mistreated someone, or some people think you mistreated someone, and yeah. they're after you for revenge. I feel like there's probably a lot of people that could have wanted him dead. It does seem that way. Yes, yes. I did really like the word hoodlumism. Hoodlumism. I practice hoodlumism. I am, I am a devout... Hoodlumist. 
I would say that I am as well. <laughs> so now, despite his life full of attractive and wealthy women, some of the press wasn't quite uh, letting themselves get to attach to that, that idea. Uh, a Santa Cruz Evening News, I hate that it rhymes, uh, article insisted that this was not a case of hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Oh, it's not? They, they say it's not. Okay. Because women don't have firearms. Is, the, that, is that the reason? Oh, who knows? Um, you can't shoot a gun with boobs. Oh, that must be it. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody knows. Those damn boobs, they just get in the way of everything. I can barely function. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but there were so many tales of the women in his life. And there was documentation of the women in his life. Um, steamy love letters from women who insisted to the police that they were only friends. Um, other steamy letters where it was really obvious that they were more than friends. And, uh, quote, some of, some of the letters told of clandestine meetings in no unmistakable words. So it, it, a little graphic is what they're saying. So basically in this day and age, his DMs would be completely full. Yes. And if you want an example of something that might have shown up in his DMs, uh, one of them with a, uh, the name suppressed was published in the paper. Oh. I am going to read it and hate it. Oh, good. Let's do this. Oh, get ready. My daddy dear. Oh. Yep, yep. It's, 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 it does not get no. better. I don't like it already. Don't like it. You came to me last night in my dreams so sweet with your two precious lips so warm, so passionate, and so loving like no other woman knows. Oh, daddy, I love you. Mm. I even heard the words of love my lover uses. Daddy, daddy, what have you done to me? Ah, could, could any man ever possess me like you have? No, no, impossible. For love we are created, and yet for love I have suffered agonies, baby. Uh, and then, hang on a second, I gotta get to the second page. Come on, tablet. I like baby more than daddy. Mm, yep, yep, yep. Daddy makes me deeply uncomfortable. Oh, I don't like it. I don't like it. I was very much like it, so I was... As I was bringing this clip in, I was like, I hate my life sometimes. Why do I do this to myself? I could just pretend I didn't find it. That would be fine. No, 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 no. I have to actually read this out loud to human beings. <laughs> like, I read a lot of porn. Like, a lot of porn. That's pretty much all I read. Um, and any daddy book is immediately gone. Oh, nope. that's, that's yeah, I, that's I, terrible. Yuck. Yuck. That's... I don't want to yuck anyone's yums. I mean, if that's what you're into, I guess that's fine. But this makes me deeply uncomfortable. Okay, so it seems like we have to pause because... Um, you can't find the second half of Daddy? It literally killed the app on my phone. Okay, look at it, this. It, okay, well, now it's working. <laughs> it felt how uncomfortable you were and was like, I'm going to give you a break and crash. Yes, and, and I appreciate that very much. It was desperately needed because uh, now I have to continue it. All right, here we go. Maybe there will be a way out. Now I can't say a thing. And then uh, there's a blank where her husband's name had been. Oh. Mm, so we'll call him... Um... Mommy? <laughs> <laughs> Uncle. No. <laughs> oh, God. It's all terrible. It's all terrible. Um... Brother. 
I'll call him brother. Brother is not well. He has this fever. Of course, he is not in bed, but he takes pills all day to keep his fever down. He got it in Africa. I had it in Egypt. It makes one feel miserable and depressed at times. Again and again, I say, I love you. Forgive me, Daddy, please. I love you, I love you, I love you forever. Only death can part my love for you. Even if you got married, I still will say I love you, your devoted baby. Ew, ew, ew. Ew. And also, I want to point out that her husband got it in Africa and she got it in Egypt. Egypt is part of Africa. Oh, of all the things you want to nitpick, of all the things you want to point out, geography... Not the 18,000 times she said daddy. I would like to block daddy out of my head. (laughs) Same. Um, So I would like to point out that Egypt is part of Africa. (laughs) So, uh, as far as more evidence, oh God. They had um, hotel receipts from visits to Arrowhead Springs and Palm Springs that he'd taken with ladies. Signed photographs from women that they'd given him as mementos. Just photos. Now, there was another story about an unnamed woman who he got pregnant. Um, who The purple secret. The purple, well, but Maybe. who then went on to have an abortion that killed her, and her brothers had threatened to kill Seaver. Ah. So there's that story, although never any more specific than that. So it really felt like there was a high probability that was gossip. Could have been gossip. Could have been quasi-legitimate, because a lot of gossip does have a shred of truth in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there was that idea of the underworld and such. Um, some some little bits of seeminess that kind of seemed to be at least adjacent to his life. Uh, there was a gambling spot near the murder scene, and police wondered if maybe there might be a connection there. You know, gambling, the underworld, somebody was mad at him because he won or something, or, you know, he had a bunch of cash in his pocket and that's all they wanted. But they looked into that and ultimately decided to throw out that theory. Um, There is another vague mention, again, of him walking from his office toward his car with a woman, and they appeared to be arguing. Uh, Somebody who had a a store on his route from the office to the parking lot saw them through the window. But again, it's December, it's 6.30 at night, it's raining and dark. Yeah, yeah. You're looking at them through a window. I don't know how certain you could be at identification and at, at seeing what's actually going on. So it's just all these little tales that have, you know, no real evidence, nothing hard supporting them. Now, as for other evidence, a few things were found on him. Uh, there was a note found in his pocket. It read, 11 p.m. Tuesday. And this was a Tuesday. Um, It might have said 11.30 with no indication of a.m. p.m. That's how it was portrayed in some articles and other articles. You get it. Um, Sources very wildly. Oh, do they ever. And it might have also said Rockwell as like a signature um, or maybe a place name, something like that. And that came up pretty quickly that it was from Mary Rockwell, who was one of his patients. Uh, She said it referred to an appointment with him. I don't know. She said she'd known Seaver for several years. They were just friends. But, quote, Mrs. Rockwell revealed that she had kissed and embraced Seaver affectionately as she prepared to leave his office. And that was the day of the murder. I threw my arms around him and said, here's a Christmas kiss for you, she told officers. He seemed quite taken aback. So 
She did say their relationship was entirely professional, but one wonders at that tale of a woman who came to his office all in a tizzy an hour before he left and was seen whispering to him. Hmm. Yeah. How many times have you kissed your dentist? Well, she did say their relationship was entirely professional, but so did a lot of ladies. Mm. And then there was an actual letter found on his body, dated December 1st, less than two weeks before the murder. We have the text. Chez Monsieur, you are a good one. Undoubtedly, you will make an excellent lawyer. Don't hesitate to use my name as a reference for your ability as such. Your recent deal with me has proven it beyond any question, and I want to congratulate you. As for my teeth, I am going to have them attended to by my previous dentist. In the meanwhile, if you feel justified paying your debt to me of $2, you may do so. Very truly yours, Leon G. Lyon. And he says, uh, in a P.S., the word monsieur in the letter Chez Monsieur is always spelled with a capital M, regardless of what your feelings might be towards that person while writing to him. All right, so first he says, you're going to make a real good lawyer because you're just an asshole, is basically what he's saying there, if you read between those lines, you know. Um, you're going to make a great lawyer. I've seen you act like a snake, is essentially what he's saying. And so what happened here was Leonard G. Lyons was another doctor. He knew French very well, and he and Dr. Siever were exchanging services. Basically, he taught Siever French, and in return, he got discounted dentistry, but now he was being kind of pissy in this letter because Siever didn't hold up his end, and he actually owed Lyons $2, which is $146 today. Okay. So he's basically like, hey, you're a dickbag. Give me the $2 you owe me. And also, you suck at French. Yeah, essentially, yes, yes. Your French was inappropriate. Um, bonsoir, monsieur. Bonsoir. I don't, I don't speak any French, <laughs> it's, so. It's good evening. I think you actually, I can't remember my French. Um, but anyhow, it doesn't matter. Um, but remember we mentioned earlier that someone said Seaver had had a relationship end. The woman had been unfaithful. He'd lost all faith in women because of it. That was Lyons. So it seems like their friendship was a little more than what he let on and what that letter seemed to imply. Because hmm. it didn't seem like Seaver was one to tell just anybody that. Hmm. Yeah. Now, a woman friend of Dr. Seaver stepped forward in the immediate aftermath of the murder. Uh, she was Mrs. W. Paul Loveland. Uh, actually, her name was Ethel. Took some digging to find that. And she said that she was a trusted pal of Dr. Seavers, and she said that Dr. Seavers' estate and affairs should be handled by Wheelock Pooler, who she said was his friend as well. This is not actually how things work. I don't know what planet she's on, but you don't just step forward when somebody dies and says, okay, I think that so-and-so, Jim Bob over there should handle his affairs. We were great friends. I know that this is what he would want. Exactly. No, he had it all, it was already set up, or they, his sister came out and took care of that shit. Um, now, Ethel Loveland, the papers just almost casually mention when they discuss her about her husband's mysterious disappearance. Oh. And they say several years ago, well, it was, uh, around New Year's 1929. He went to Yuma, Arizona after Christmas and was never seen again. He was a World War vet. 
Uh, and he was also an architect and sportsman. And the architect, actually, when you look up his name, if you look up Paul Loveland, you can see examples of his architecture still standing in uh, California today. Some of them have been for sale recently. Very nice, you know, very much the California, like, kind of Spanish-style architecture. Really just good stuff. Cool. So, but he, uh, he disappeared. <laughs> And was never seen again. There were a couple instances where it would be like um, there was a, a, a body found in a shallow grave somewhere around Mexico. And they were like, oh, that might be him. But then in a subsequent article, it was like, all right, well, they found two pairs of eyeglasses on him. But his wife says those aren't his eyeglasses. So it was all very murky and nothing but ever came of it. But if his wife did it, of course she's going to be like, that's not him. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of kind of weird. I'm just saying, like I said, there's all this drama around the people that knew him, that knew Dr. Siever. Lots of secrets. Lots of weird secrets, lots of weird bumps in the road that are happening for reasons unknown, but there's probably a reason behind them. And so um, then there was uh, whether or not Dr. Siever was engaged or how many women he was engaged to. Um, this particular article, when mentioning... Uh, Mrs. Loveland is unclear as oh. to which it is just because of some, I'd say a pronoun issue. Uh, among those questioned today was Barry, uh, Barry, B-A-R-R-I-E. I guess it's Barry. It's a woman. Huh. Barry O'Daniels, close friend of Mrs. W. Paul Loveland, society matron to whom Dr. Seaver once was engaged to be married. It's just unclear whether society matron is M Mrs. Loveland or uh, O'Daniels. And so um, don't know. They probably both were. Yeah, probably both, yeah. Now, um, like I said, his sister came out to, to deal with his affairs, and she said he had no enemies that she was aware of, and she had no possible explanation for his death. Um, but as far as women were concerned, she said that he'd recently told her in a letter that he had just decided not to marry. So despite him proposing to every gal in sight... Didn't have any real plans to follow through. He was just recycling those uh, those rings. Maybe that's uh, how you get him to go to Palm Springs with you. <laughs> Maybe. So now, uh, despite the missing wallet and the watch, much like you, the police were quick to shut down that idea that it might have been a robbery. They thought it was a ruse. Try to make it look like a robbery. They also said it. they didn't think it was any sort of a hit job. I think the reasoning's a little shaky here. They said uh, no professional would use a weapon like the cheap 32 caliber that was used against Dr. Seaver. They don't necessarily have that. Um, I don't know. They were never more specific about the gun than 32 caliber. You know, so I don't think they actually did any sort of ballistics. Or if they did, it, nothing resulted from it. You know, like checking the... the yeah. But I, I feel like a hit job, though, too, but wouldn't have gone to the trouble of trying to stage it as a robbery. Yeah, that too. That too. Because if you're, if you're a, a, somebody doing that professionally, you're probably, hopefully, good enough at your job to not have it be obvious. Yeah, and I feel like a hit job would be like one through the head and done. But this was multiple gunshots. Head and heart. Yeah, yeah. So, um... Now, they felt that actually it was the umbrella that told the whole story. His umbrella was unopened or closed, all right? So it had been raining that night. They thought that somebody had walked with him, holding their own umbrella over him until they got to the car, and then shot him. 
I think that's a leap because he was found next to his car. If you have an umbrella and you're getting in the car, you close it. True. I mean, it just seems silly to me to think that he wasn't using his umbrella just because it was closed. Well, yeah, you're gonna. When you're getting in your car, umbrella doesn't quite fit. Either could have been true, though. Like, it is totally possible that somebody came up and was like, hey, let me talk to you, and put their own umbrella over his head so he closed his own. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. So um, here was how the L.A. Mirror sort of spelled it out for us. Behind him, the killer raised a gun, a thirty-two caliber revolver, and fired one shot that ranged upward through the dentist's skull. An autopsy strengthened their theory. In Dr. Seaver's stomach was found half a pint of blood, showing he had lived between four and five minutes after the first shot. Then the killer, impatient at the tardiness of death, sent a bullet plunging through the heart. It stopped the slow pumping that had sent blood from the head wound draining into Dr. Seaver's stomach. No bandit, they reasoned, would have stood there for five minutes waiting for his victim to die. So they're thinking there's some motive beyond robbing him because the person shot him, waited for him to die, and then he, when he didn't die as quickly as they wanted to, shot him again. How do they know that? No, yeah, see, they don't. They really don't. They might think that they do. They might think that there's some way to tell that these shots were five minutes apart. But honestly, like, even now... Uh, I was listening to a podcast recently where they said post-mortem interval, you know, that what we can say about when somebody died. Uh, and, yeah, and, they could have fired both shots, like, boom, boom. Yeah. And then ran, and five minutes later, he finally succumbed. But even today, there can be a two- to three-hour margin of error on yeah. post-mortem interval, even with all of our technology and knowledge today. So in the 1930s, I we highly doubt— They're just making shit up. Yeah, they're just making shit up. I, I, I just, I, I, I'm sure that they could tell maybe which one was shot first, but not the amount of time between them. Because I'm sure that with the way that, that blood flows, you would, you would be able to figure out something as to where it came from first, possibly. Maybe. So, don't know. But it's, it's just, what, and the thing is, is that they said the murder happened between 11 p.m. and midnight. He was walking out to his car at 6.30. He never showed up to pick up Mrs. Francis Cohen Cook. Mm, I think they were way off. Way yeah. off. Yeah, I think they were way off. I don't think that they're... The only way that they could say which shot was first is angles. Yes, angles are a thing here. We'll get into that. Because you'd be able to say, say okay, well, the heart shot came while he was laying on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's obvious that they're not right about even the time that he was shot. They probably don't know the, what how much time elapsed between shots. Yeah. So, um, now... They say that the first shot was probably a headshot at close range, and the second one into his chest. Um, how they knew that, uh, according to the San Pedro News pilot, powder marks surmounted the chest wound, and the bullet had pierced the body, flattening against the driveway. So they were at least able to tell because the one bullet didn't come out in the driveway, and the other one did, I guess. That makes sense, yeah. Now, another thing they figured out was, uh, I mentioned that the bullet had gone upward through his skull. They figured from the upward angle that the shooter was either shorter than Dr. Seaver or was crouching when they fired. So one theory was that the killer hid under his car, and as Seaver approached, they slid up and shot from the ground. There was also the idea of shooting from the hip. Um, just, you know, pull up out of your pocket real quick and keep your arm close to your body. Or that the killer was significantly shorter than him. Like, like female. Like a woman. Yeah. So police say they thought it was likely a friend due to, quote, 
or no, not a friend, but somebody who knew him and had some sort of a motive, uh, due to, quote, the fiendish determination to ensure death. Hmm. So, the, I mean, two shots, okay, yeah, they definitely wanted to make sure that he was dead, and especially with the location of the shots, head and the heart, you know, your odds are greatly increased once you get both of those. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's quite fiendish level. Fiendish level is like, you got it ten times stabbed. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it's not really fiendish level. It's just like, I just want this guy dead. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I just want to make sure. I want to make sure there's no murder accidents. Here. I don't do things halfway. I don't commit no murder accidents, coppa. <laughs> Gotta make sure. It was a murder accident. Um, so, but they do say that the position that Seaver's body was found in indicated he had no warning. That this... You know, he wasn't standing and chatting with somebody probably, and, and, and or it wasn't somebody running across the road to him. They snuck up on him. Now, um, the cathedral had a caretaker, but he said he hadn't heard anything that night. No struggle, not even any gunshots. Silencers had been around for since the turn of the century. So that possibility is in the mix, which definitely feels like somebody with some know-how. You know, you're getting a silencer involved. Oh, or you have a potato. Or you have a potato. That too, yeah. So the murder scene, I, I told you, is the Scottish Rite Cathedral. It sounds like a church, right? Is it a bar? No, it's a Masonic temple. Oh. I was really hoping it was a bar. Yeah, I know. That would be a, a really great name for a bar. Um, but uh, it's, the Scottish Rite is one of the rites of Freemasonry. Um, rights are the degrees that are conferred by the Masonic organizations. Um, sort of like ranks, I guess. Um, some of the ranks that absolutely tickled me as I was uh, looking into this. Secret master. Oh, and think about which of these you want to be. Okay. That's, that's what we're going to be for the rest of the episode. Uh, intimate secretary. Oh. Perfect master. Master architect. Perfect elu. E-L-U? L-U? Something like that. Grand Pontiff. Knight of the Royal Axe. Knight of the Brazen Serpent. Inspector Inquisitor. Or Master of the Royal Secret. Hmm. There's some good picks in there. I know, right? I think I want to be a knight of the big snake. Oh my gosh, that was me too! We're both knights of the Brazen Serpent. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it, it was just, it calls itself a cathedral. It is a very large building. It actually in structure similar to the one that was by your old house. Oh, okay. So I did compare them. Because uh, I was like, that building looks familiar. Uh, you know, that, that kind of like big imposing type structure, very flat on the front, not really, you know, ornamentation. But it was just weird to me that all of a sudden, as I'm doing this case and thinking that he died next to a church... I'm like, oh, no, no, the Masons are in this. No, I mean, they're not in this. They might be. That we know of. Allegedly, he wasn't killed by a Mason. Allegedly. Yo, I lived across the street from the Masonic Temple. I was convinced that one day one of them would murder me. See, that means a lot to me as far as evidence, uh, but I'm going to keep my allegedly just for liability purposes. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. There's just, it feels like the building itself feels like there's something shady. Yes, yes. It's malevolent. I agree with you on that. So um, behind the cathedral, 
there were there was a fence and some of the pickets in the fence had been removed which indicated maybe someone had used that as their entrance and exit and the property owner said that before the murder they were there although we don't know how often does he look at his fence you know yeah now I could have sworn those things were there the the chief inspector or the chief detective said the killer certainly selected a great night for a murder because as i mentioned um pretty much everything washed away and it's a rainy, rainy night. Not too many witnesses. People are more likely to stay inside. I want to uh, pivot a little bit to talk about actually kind of the vibes in California at this point in time, in Pasadena, um, in this general area. So uh, the story is on the edge of page one of uh, one of the newspapers, The Morning That It Breaks. Now, as you turn the page, you find lots of ads for movies. It's the moving pictures time. And practically right next to the story about Dr. Seaver. So you read the story about Dr. Seaver, you turn the page, and this is the first thing you see, is an ad for a movie called After Tonight. So it stars Constance Bennett, uh, entrancing in the story of a beautiful Russian spy. It's kind of strange that we have this Russian immigrant and then a movie about a Russian spy. Um, the most puzzling, bewildering crime thriller of them all is feature number two, and that's the movie Fog. Now, the synopsis of After Tonight, while romancing a beautiful Russian countess, a captain in the Austrian intelligence service is assigned to capture K-14, a clever spy who has so far managed to remain undetected. What the captain doesn't know is that he is actually closer to the spy than he realizes. Bum, bum, bum. It's the Russian countess. <laughs> Obviously. So there's this romance and intrigue and all of that. Um, and then fog is uh, the murders are committed in swift succession on board a liner crossing the Atlantic in a dense fog. And many of the passengers come under suspicion before the actual killer is brought to justice with the aid of a very substantial, quote, ghost. So there's all this, this definitely love of mystery. So I can really see that this area was primed and ready for a murder like this to capture their attention. Something with mystery, something with romance, something with intrigue. And drama. And drama, and just a little hint of dirtiness. And letters that are addressed to daddy. Oh, why? Oh, I don't know. Because it's, ha it's haunting me. It's haunting me. It haunts me. So in the beginning... Of course, there was all this talk uh, of, uh, as the case was starting to really pick up speed, some rich, glamorous, gorgeous redhead from Hollywood said to be an aviatrix, so lady pilot, with a flair for bizarre and elaborate parties. I like her already. Uh, the San Francisco Examiner said, Love, twisted by jealous passion into a murderous desire for revenge, was the apparent motive for the weird crime. Now, they didn't say they thought the redhead did it, just that she might have some clues. So you can see now we're introducing mysterious redhead. Oh, the mysterious redhead. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was probably her. We all know about them redheads. We all know their trouble. Trouble everywhere they go. Um, now, they did eventually name her. Her name was Peggy Lajotte. Uh, they finally found her, and it was a really <laughs> a letdown from a drama perspective because she just didn't have any information for them. 
It, I, I think she might have even gotten just pulled in by accident. She might not even, even really knew him. Yeah, it might not even be the same redhead. They're like, you're a redhead, you match the description. And she's like, I might have been in the same coffee shop as him one time. Yeah, exactly. It was Starbucks, man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So they also questioned Francis Cohen Cook. Um, she told them, you know, at that point in time, her story was that she barely even knew the doctor. Um, and that this was kind of their first date. Then they questioned Dr. Wagner. Remember, that was her surgeon friend she was driving around with that night. He said he dropped Francis off, and then he went to do a house call. And then uh, he went to a party at the Pasadena Community Playhouse. And it seemed like his alibi checked out. That's a shame, because he was one of my prime suspects. Yeah, yeah. Um, keep his name in your head. Not for that reason, though. <laughs> Just keep his name in your head. Um, and so... Uh, they questioned all of his lady friends, of course, but that only seemed to add more confusion because all these steamy letters, they had the guest books and autograph books and stuff like that that I mentioned. They're trying to find members of his circle and everybody's being kind of vague about their relationship. A lot of these women are saying they're, they're his friends, but then of course they have letters written in almost graphic detail about nights spent together in Palm Springs and it seems like maybe they're lying a little bit. So, yeah. We were just friends. I'm, I have a letter here that says you were born again. But no, it was just really friendly. It was uh, for an assignment. We were writing stories to each other just to keep each other entertained. It's really boring in California. It's uh, oh God, so boring. I just I have a ball and a cup, and that's it. <laughs> and I'm a grown adult. <laughs> so uh, there was also... This idea that maybe somebody had threatened him or something because he'd reportedly uh, come to his office building earlier that week and he just made a stop on a Sunday. The office lights were on. And there was mention that he refused to go into the office alone because he thought somebody was in there unexpectedly maybe waiting to ambush him. Um, but it just turned out that it was just somebody else from that office complex. So... Um, but that makes me think somebody was after him and he knew it. Yeah, his nervousness about that really is curious. Because, like, in a normal situation, I feel like you'd be like, oh, the janitor must have forgotten to turn the lights out. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not going in there alone. I'm not going in there alone. There's probably somebody waiting for me. They might try to do a murder accident. So, like, <laughs> that tells me that he definitely received at least a threat or two. Yeah, it feels, it feels like a very strange... Um, stance to take, a strange reaction in that moment. And happening just a few days before his actual murder, yeah. it only seems stranger. Uh, then there was the promissory note. Uh, another Pasadena doctor, uh, unnamed, had it in their possession, signed by Dr. Seaver, but they couldn't find any more information out about that. It was for $8,500. That's about $181,000 today. Damn. So that is no small uh, potato chips. <laughs> yeah, so like this other guy's like, he owes me a lot of money, so I want that from the estate. And all the police are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why did he give you that? Don't yep. worry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's not a concern. Don't worry, don't worry. I just need my money. <laughs> so they suspected maybe something extortion adjacent, but they couldn't trace it to whoever was holding it. So that petered out. Like I said, this is the case of a thousand clues. Just all these random things keep on popping up and you never really know what's going to come next. And because...
because there wasn't enough going on already, um, Francis Cohen Cook got a package containing Dr. Seaver's wristwatch. Ooh. And a note demanding $5,000 from her. For what? Okay, so I'm going to read you the note. You are in a hot spot. You want to know real truth for $5,000. I give complete information. Also pistol, 32. I think pistol has finger marks on it. Fingerprints, I would imagine. Yeah. I swear this is truth before got. G-O-T-T, as in Mm. the German, yeah. I was in Brookside Park Wednesday, December 13th and saw a party hide these evidence. Answer examiner, class 120. That's a request for them to answer in the personal ads in the newspaper. Uh, Signed, Mabel. Mail if you want deal. I'd be very happy to accommodate you. If not, someone else will be glad to pay reward. You know who. If not, police will. You be very sorry. Don't tell, please. If you want deal, must be cash. I don't want trouble. $5,000. So maybe Mabel finds this in the trash at the park and was like, all right, I have all this. I want money. And the police aren't offering a reward. But maybe somebody will give me a reward. Well, the police actually didn't believe that it was even, um, they didn't think it was real. You, you, you get the, um, the grammar in there. Mm-hmm. It was not very literate. And they thought it was actually someone to, trying to hide their identity through like masking it with, with you know, these horrible grammar and writing with their non-dominant hand. See, and you know what? I thought I was cynical. Uh, Maybe (laughs) I'm not, because part of me is like, this is probably just an immigrant, because at the time there was lots of immigrants, and we're not very well-versed in English yet. And the got is kind of a giveaway of of maybe this is just an immigrant, and even though English is their second language, maybe they're not super great at writing in it. See, that strikes me as entirely possible, too. And, And the got would be an easy word to stay in your vernacular to, to be the one you use instead of God because they're so close together. Yeah. You know, it's not like people will notice a huge difference and be like, what did you say? No, it sounds really close to God. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, think about it too, is if you went to school all through your youth over in, say, Germany, and then you move to the U.S., you're not going to go back to school to learn it all again. You're just going to have to pick it up in bits and pieces as you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it definitely seems like it could very well have been an immigrant or it could have been someone trying to make it look that way. Yep, could go either way. It's really it's really a tough call there, but they decided to try to maybe compare the handwriting between the note and the love letters. No match. Um, they also did uh, handwriting tests of the non-dominant hands of principal figures in the case and got nothing. However, however, one interesting thing to me is that I said non-dominant, but every time I said non-dominant, they said left. So left is like the default non, non-dominant hand. That hurts my feelings. Okay, but imagine if people just assume that everybody wrote with their right hand and nobody writes with their left hand because it's been beaten out of them. Okay, so if everybody just assumes that, then the person who actually is a lefty wrote it with their right hand and then they come in and they're given a test oh. where they're asked to write in their actual dominant hand. But everybody else doesn't think it's their dominant hand. Oh, yeah. That could just accidentally work out for you. Yeah. Or at least be like a, a reassurance when you're writing the letter that like, okay, they'll probably just assume 
that somebody wrote it with their left hand because they think that's everybody's non-dominant hand. Or somebody who's ambidextrous. Yeah. They're not even considering these possibilities. They're like, left hand, all of you. <laughs> Everybody write with your left hand. All right, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't actually get anything out of that. <laughs> didn't work out anyhow. Um, Francis Cohen Cook did put that note in the classified section. Uh, it said, interested, difficult to raise entire amount. We'll wait your further directions, or if you desire, phone me. Answer delayed a day because wrong, <clears throat> wrong address on envelope. Mabel. So it's interesting that they she used Mabel to sign it back. Maybe she read it as like their letter as answer examiner class 120. Sign it, Mabel. Yeah. In order to identify. Because there's no other way to identify who sent this. So um, no response ever came. I sometimes lean towards her as a suspect. Sometimes. And then... Um, there's this little bit from the L.A. Mirror. A final angle of the immediate investigation centered on the rumor that the dentist had known both of an abortion ring and of a circle of sex perverts in Pasadena and had threatened to expose them. Not the sex perverts. The sex perverts are going to commit some murder accidents. Calling it for a band name. <laughs> okay, so sex perverts, band name, and first album is called Murder Accidents. Yep, perfect. I it. love it. Yes, yes. So, um, now, here's a kind of, uh, here's the thing. There were some personal documents later found in his belongings, which included notations of hundreds of dollars over time sent to two separate women. Sounds like he might have some, some child support or alimony payments. Or slowly over time paying them back for an abortion. Oh. So that idea kind of is like, eh, something's definitely, I mean, it, just odds alone. And the, the of, of getting pregnant with all the women that he was clearly with. And the little knowledge people had about birth control and the little ability. There was literally an article in that year in the newspaper about a state that was trying to make birth control legal. So. Yeah. If birth control is illegal and you bang 50 women, I guarantee a couple of babies are going to be a, a, a thing to, to think about. Babies happen. So now slowly, actually not even slowly, like b beginning of the next year, January 1st, 1934. And it seems like this is just the paper thinks that the police are just using it as an excuse to hobnob. So uh, with, you know, the rich and fabulous. This is what they say in, uh, in one newspaper. The Dr. Leonard Seaver Pasadena murder mystery has turned into a comic extravaganza with the taxpayer holding the sack, with newspaper photographers ordering detectives to bring in witnesses to pose for pictures with representatives of the district attorney's office, with the hotel service conveniently at hand, with meals for everybody, waiters rushing with trays of food into Bungalow 66 on the Hotel Maryland grounds, and no results. So everybody's kind of frustrated. Um... And it continues to go on unsolved. So 1934 continues along. And um, you know how I said, like, the principles of this case, lots of, lots of drama? Mm -hmm. Well, um, let's talk about Dr. Carl Wagner. All right, circling back. Circling back to Dr. Carl Wagner. And uh, 1934 uh, it saw the end of him. Okay. So he was out on a, uh, a drive, driving back from... 
a party with a young woman named Dorothy Dell. Um, she was an up-and-coming starlet. She had kind of just blown onto the scene after actually winning um, Miss Universe in Texas. Oh, my. Yes. And uh, she had gotten a job with the Zigfield Follies in New York, and then she got a uh, contract with Paramount, and uh, she had like three or four films released that year, and she was only 19. Damn. Yeah. So uh, they had gone to an inn in Altadena, and they were headed towards Pasadena in the wee hours. Uh, this is reading from her biography on IMDb. When the car left the highway, hit a telephone pole, bounced off a palm tree, and hit a boulder. Damn. Miss Dell was killed instantly. Her date, Dr. Carl Wagner, who was driving, died several hours later. Damn. Yeah, yeah. It's a little something. So there was uh, that drama. And uh, there was some drama for Francis Cohen Cook. Uh, she, uh, she was arrested on a morals charge in a hotel room in Pasadena. Okay. I know. It's kind of, kind of a little surprising. Well, the morals charge, it's usually uh, either prostitution or something along those lines. Yeah, um, well, here's how the one newspaper phrased it, which I thought uh, was, was funny. Um, so she was in this, this hotel room with Robert B. Orthwine, who was 27, from St. Louis. Um, the woman's arrest resulted when police went to the fashionable Pasadena hotel room to interrogate Robert B. Orthwine regarding a $25 check. There they found Orthwine and Mrs. Cook attired in street clothes, sitting at a table, sipping highballs. It all seemed quite regular, but in staid Pasadena, any woman who pays a social call on a man in a hotel room is subject to arrest. Wow! You cannot go see a guy in a hotel room and sit there and have drinks in your clothes. Heaven forbid, Jesus. Wow, yeah. So the police took her to jail. She's posted $50 bail. She says, um, I've been the un innocent victim of a lot of unwelcome publicity in connection with the Seaver case. Um, this charge is just a frame-up, and I'll fight it to a finish. The judge dismissed the charge. So, but definitely some... How dare she share a drink with a man in a hotel room? I know, right? Hussy. And that was actually three months after she was in a car accident. Uh, she narrowly avoided death. Uh, she was... The, a car in which she was riding crashed into a curb. She was confined to a Pasadena hospital for several days... And at one point, doctors almost found it necessary to perform a minor operation. Wow. Well, yeah. So um, she had a pretty dramatic year. And um, yeah, Dr. Wagner had actually treated uh, Dorothy Dell for laryngitis. And then they became friends. Uh, and yeah. So, and he had saved her mother's life when her mother was stricken with pneumonia. Yeah, yeah. It's not really a, a pretty tale. Um, didn't, didn't end well for Dr. Wagner at all. So um, now the next year comes around. There's an anniversary uh, of the murder. And the DA's investigator said that he was going to question some new witnesses. But basically all the people he summoned to chat with him were no-shows. And so literally nothing happened. Yeah, because nobody showed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then some other... Real characters entered the scene. They were Nellie and Eric Madison. Now, 
at this point in time, Eric was dead because Nellie had murdered him in 1934. She was sentenced to death, and from her cell, she spilled the tea that Eric had killed Dr. Siever. The motive was said to be, of course, a woman that both the men wanted. A wealthy, pretty divorcee. Uh, Nellie said Eric confessed to this killing shortly before his death. So, um, now, supposedly at some point in time that actually physically fought over the woman, the divorcee. Okay. In Palm Springs. And then later he killed her, him, him. He killed Dr. Seaver and then Nellie killed Eric. Um, Lots of killing happening. Yeah, yeah. uh, He said, she... Her story was, he confessed it to me once when he was drunk. He gave the watch to a woman friend. Wonder if he gave it to a Mabel. Why would anyone sign their real name, though? Yeah, I don't think that he, he gave it to a Mabel. Maybe he gave it to... Um, Francis Cohen Cook? Francis Cohen Cook, yeah. Maybe, the, the wealthy, pretty divorcee who uh, got the letter, which was gave just... Gave it to a lady friend. Of course, was, you know, addressed incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, that's how you prove that it wasn't you that sent it. So, now, when questioned, when questioned, I can talk words. Words. I can talk words. This divorcee, who remained unnamed, said she'd known Eric Madison, but didn't know Dr. Seaver. Which, um, Francis Cohen Cook has been very unclear on, I will note. Um, Now, police couldn't find any actual association between Seaver and Madison, Eric Madison, that is, Aside from the fact that they both did go to Palm Springs eventually, um, or occasionally, and after a while, everyone figured that Nellie had just made the whole thing up. Uh, she seemed to really enjoy attention. She did, by the way, get a commutation and was out after just eight years. Wow. So, um, and then uh, the police at one point in time apparently were trying out some psychics for some different cases, and the... The Seaver case was brought up in that context just kind of to show you how frustrating um, its remaining unsolved was. Um, This is in the LA Times in that article. As the woman left the police station, Chief Kelly remarked, Now I want you to go to work on the murder of Dr. Leonard Seaver, a a society dentist shot to death near the Masonic Temple three years ago. The psychic replied, That is something I'll have to think over. If the mood comes to me, I'll try it. The police chief told the Times, If this woman can solve that case, I'll begin to believe there is something that police don't know about detective work. All right. Yes. Uh, Weird, but it just kind of shows you how the the case stood in their minds and and stuck with them. Solve it, I dare you. Yeah. Now, there's some weirdness that happens uh, in 18... Sorry, 18, yeah. (gasps) A hundred years ago. In 1935, April, a... Private investigator slash lawyer came forward. Um, his name was Harry Karsh. And the story that he told was that he wasn't involved in the murder. But the day after, he went to Dr. Seaver's office and ransacked it. Oh. Took a diary, some letters, and some other papers. I, I don't know. I don't know. Why? Why? I mean, because you could just read the paper, see what happened, be like, nobody's going to be looking there. I'll go steal some shit. I guess so. I guess so. But it was said, 
Okay, so I said lawyer, but I think he was actually at this point still a, a law student. Um, so were they friends? Like, I, I don't know what his motivation was. Um, he said that he had passed the papers he took from the office onto a third party. We know very frustratingly little about them, including the diary, his own personal diary that he kept. I want to see that. Um, there was an entry on the date of the murder. Date with LB at 5.30. Don't know what I'm going to do. Weird as hell. Um, they did start looking at people he knew with the initials LB, and since he knew so many people, he actually knew eight. Wow. But they couldn't connect a single one to the murder. It's weird to me. Don't know what I'm going to do. It doesn't sound like a date. It, well, he's, but he says date. So what kind of date? Yeah, like, it, I don't, I'm not thinking romantic date. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking, like, I owe this guy money, or I've wronged this person in some way, and this is the day we're going to meet him, and I don't know what to do. I mean, and it was that day. It was the murder date at 5.30. As long as that was p.m., which seems the more likely case then that was just an hour before he left his office. So he's still at work. We know that much. Uh, an hour before his law, uh, he left his office, Mary Rockwell came. Um, but he had a whole separate paper with, you know, Mary Rockwell 1130 or 11. So, yeah, very strange. And obviously Mary Rock Rockwell does not have LB initials, so probably isn't her. Unless it, she goes by love bug or something, like it's like an endearment. Oh, there you go. There you go. And they did say that the diary... Little bitch. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, he calls her little bitch, definitely. Um, they did say that the diary contained Seaver's personal recollections of all of his amorous adventures. Oh, so you sense my frustration. Lots of daddy in there, huh? Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he signed every entry, daddy. Big daddy. <laughs> Big daddy. Uh, another thing that Karsh said he got his hands on. Baby. Baby, little baby. <gasps> the unnamed woman signed it, baby. Oh. He has the daddy baby thing going on. Mm-hmm. I, I bet it's something baby. Date with little baby. I wonder if Mary Rockwell was a divorcee. Hmm. Hmm. Now, another thing that Harry Karsh said he had was the gun used in the murder. He said that another man. Sure. Somebody else. There's always somebody else. I know, right? He said another man gave him the gun and told him to take it to Mexico and hide it there. And it feels like all he's doing is just muddying the water. So that's maybe why he stepped forward in the first place. He felt he needed to distract the police and the press and everybody. They're getting too close. Because it's weird that this all came up like almost a year and a half after. And maybe it's all just bullshit. Because in June 1935, Harry Karsh went on trial for preparing false evidence and attempting to bribe witnesses in another case. No, yeah. well, maybe he just likes to start shit. I think he likes to start shit. Regarding the gun... Pasadena police got in touch with the Tijuana police who said, oh, yeah, somebody, uh, we, we arrested a dude and he had a, a 32 caliber gun just like that on him. Um, but we let him go. Did but he have his gun back? They, no, they actually kept the gun. Oh, okay. And it was taken to Los Angeles for ballistics, 
quote, but the bullets taken from the dentist's body were badly battered. Jesus. And the gun itself was corroded. The tests were inconclusive. However, the gun is of the type from which the death bullets were fired, and it cannot be ruled out entirely. Um, just a, a note to any 1930s journalists. If you want me to read your stuff out loud on the air, just include words like death bullets. Death bullets. Death bullets. I like it. As opposed to what, life bullets? Come on. Bringer of life, don't you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, there's just a lot of this confusion. And then somehow all of this stuff, the diary and some letters related to Seaver and some other documents related to him, were confiscated from somebody who held them named Ed Edward Brody. But then a week later, that guy's attorney told the DA's office that they wanted him back. And the DA's office, I guess, had no choice but to comply. That doesn't seem right. It seems like the DA should have a little bit more power than random attorney telling him, hey, um, give those back. Yeah, that's I call dibs. <laughs> so it's weird. Yeah. Very strange. And it's not like the district attorney had no plans for this. He planned to convene a grand jury and lay out the evidence before them. But then he gave the documents back and nothing happened. There was no grand jury. And um, really, as far as the investigation went, that was kind of that. It was... Seems like they really tried to investigate real, real hard. Yeah, yeah. It remained um, unsolved. And it does feel like there's this aspect, something going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing. Oh, yeah. That... that helped to shut this down and either stonewall the police or stonewall the press or the people. And Dr. Seaver being like the only member of his family, living on the side of the country, having some relationships with women who maybe don't want it to be known that they had a relationship with them. Nobody's really standing up and demanding that they continue and complete an investigation. Yeah. So um, you and I went to the same college at one point. Mm-hmm. And in that part of town, it was like the nicer part of town where all the rich people live. A it's literally of, called Richland. Yeah. So uh, a lot of stuff gets shoved under the rug because we don't want to embarrass any prominent people. Mm -hmm. This story already has a lot of prominent people listed in it. And so I suspect that a lot of their findings just got swept under the rug because we don't want everybody to know about everybody's dirty laundry, especially the ones that have enough money to bribe us. Yeah, it's definitely something that that is being, something's being hidden here. I guarantee you, somebody did not tell the full truth. And I think a lot of people did not tell the full truth. And I think there's a possibility that some of those people are actually law enforcement. Yep. So that that's just my gut feeling I'm going with. But it does contain a little bit of, of actual analysis based on the way that the evidence was presented. And, yeah, I de definitely think under the rug is where they wanted this case to stay. And that's, that's in fact, what happened. Um, one thing that did... Okay, so uh, we recorded our bonus episode. And I gave you a few articles about Dr. Weston, the, the housemate of Dr. Seaver. I also told you the story of the aviatrix. The very beautiful aviatrix. The very beautiful blonde aviatrix. And uh, she was a woman who uh, kind of, she either got kidnapped with a guy or went to, a, uh, by a guy or got to, uh, eloped with him. 
It's unclear. It's, it's, it's really unclear whether her life was in danger or it was uh, the most romantic day of her life. And then they came, were brought back to California. And uh, the night before his trial, the kidnapper, supposedly maybe, uh, they got married. And they dismissed the charges. And then, like, within a couple months, they were divorced. Well, she, she flew planes. They always said aviatrix, aviatrix. She was always an aviatrix and an actress. Hard to tell because everything was in black and white. And she was referred to as a blonde, but could be a redhead. I have this thing that no matter what color my hair actually is, people call me a redhead. Same. It's the weirdest thing. I swear my hair could be purple and people would be like, hey, redhead. It's it's very strange. Apparently, just my complexion just screams redhead no matter what else is going on up top. So, yeah, people aren't always great at naming colors, especially colors as widely varied as natural human hair. And she was an aviatrix. She seemed to have a very dramatic life, which definitely she's suited to Dr. Seaver and his crowd. They would be a good pair. They would be kind of a good pair. And um, there was something else about her. Oh, just the timing of it all. Her whole fiasco happened in uh, April and May of 1934. This murder happened in December of 1933. That's like... That is just enough time to get involved in an ill-advised whirlwind relationship with possibly an abusive shitheel. Yeah, which seemed to be kind of her M.O. So, yeah, it was very strange. I like shit Because, yes, I, thank you. I was going through and, and looking at um, all the, the female uh, flyers back then, which is actually more prevalent than you, you'd think. Uh, granted... They only made the one lady take six hours of formal instruction before she did her first solo flight. <laughs> that seems like not enough. Doesn't seem like quite enough, but hey, it, it probably only required three hours of the men. <laughs> so, but True. it's like, it, I, was, I was impressed with us and with society in general that there were so many women who they were like, okay, we'll let you fly. Because just like 30, 40 years before that, bicycles were considered unladylike and women shouldn't ride them. You could break your hymen. You could break your hymen and you don't want to go on a train because we all know the uterus will just fly right out. Oh, yes. So there's just all kinds of horrible things that can happen to your lady parts if you so much as go near a mode of transportation. Gee, I wonder if they want to keep women in their place. You think? Metaphorically and geographically. (laughs) So, uh, so yes. I maybe have a recipe for you. Give me a second. You maybe, maybe have a recipe for me. I, I'm pretty sure that I haven't read this one to you. Yummy, yummy. How about some chicken jelly? Okay. Place the chicken in the stew pan with just enough water to a little more than cover it and simmer until the meat drops from the bones. There will be about one pint of juice. Strain, season a few minutes more. Doesn't say what to season with or what we're doing here. Then pour into an earthen dish and set on ice to harden. Serve cold with toast or cut into slices and serve as sandwiches. Are we, is, are we making this actual ju- jelly? Is this actual jelly? Because I don't... Mm, how is this working? It, it just seems like it should be very plain, unseasoned chicken. But wait. But wait. Because you said chicken jelly. Mm-hmm. It's actually um, a, a 
food suitable for the convalescent. So what we're doing is we're draining out the liquid from the chicken and then that is what we are chilling and the fat from the chicken will make it congeal. Okay, all right, all right. I actually thought we were using real food like chicken. No, well, we're, we use the chicken to season the, the fat and water. Thank you for translating that for me and I hate it. You're welcome. <laughs> the only reason I know this is because I very often make entire chickens for the family and I, I will keep all the broth to store it in as leftovers because it keeps it nice and, and moist. Oh, and, evil, evil. But like, maybe that, your nickname is LB. So that juice will actually congeal. And so, like, I probably on a weekly basis have some version of chicken jelly in my fridge. Do you serve it cold with toast or cut it into slices and make a sandwich out of it? No, I don't often eat it cold, but I will heat it up. To because it will turn back. Well, yeah, then it's broth again. That's broth. I mean, you could dip bread in the broth, and it would be like the same thing as smearing it cold on a piece of bread because then you have like a weird, weird version of like a mayonnaise sandwich, like chicken mayo sandwich or toast, but with jelly, but not not good. Well, so if you use toast and then you you smear the chicken jelly on it, it'll melt like butter and turn back into broth. Maybe. I'd eat it. I mean, bread and gravy was actually one of my favorite, like... I had that for meals twice last week because I had a lot of gravy left over. I loved bread and gravy. I still love bread and gravy. That was my favorite meal. I still love it to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, yeah, I guess, I guess, but... they say serve cold, so you're not really giving it enough time to, to melt back into broth or even come to room temperature. It's true, yeah. They want they want it to keep the consistency so it's not dripping off. But yeah, I think it'd be like the same thing. The texture would just be a little different, but the taste would be exactly the same. But texture is so important. Well, not to the jelly people of the 60s. I like, guess not, you know, not to the convalescents. We don't really care what kind of textures they experience. Terrible ones. So, yeah. Terrible ones. Because I've seen like this, uh, they have to put a powder in in liquid for for some people to have trouble drinking liquids to make it a little more solid. And I imagine it would have the same texture as that chicken jelly. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like it would. And um, yeah. Yeah. If uh, if we ever need to start doing that, let's make a pact here and now that uh, we'll just off each other. Yes. 100%. Yes. I think that's a good pact. We should get that in writing. So um, I can't have chicken anymore, only the jelly from it. <laughs> only jelly of chicken with toast. So, um, all right. Well, first of all, thank you to Reagan for uh, sending us your, your hometown of Pasadena. That was a fascinating murder that really hasn't been covered in very many other places. Uh, the vast, vast majority of my sources were the old-timey newspapers, so it was really fun to dig into this, and around every turn there was a surprise. This was probably one of the most dramatic cases I've ever seen, and not even because the newspapers tried so hard to pump up the drama, but because literally everyone around him seemed to also have dramatic lives. So it was, it was very fun. So thank you. And also a big thank you to our new patrons, who I neglected to thank last week. Sorry. Um... <laughs> So here you go, Jennifer Riff and Kat Adair. 
Hi. Or maybe Jennifer Riffey. There's an E on there. I'm not sure. Um, so hello and welcome to the Patreon. You too can hear my voice of a freaking nightingale that's had its throat stomped sing <laughs> your name on our show um, just by joining our Patreon. So, And at $5, you get all of our bonus material. There's a ton of back material there. And there's also every week coming out with, with new episodes. Um, Amber told me about a series of robberies in the days after Christmas and all the very interesting characters involved in that. Somebody was horse wrestling at the age of 13. And Starting young. Yeah, and I told her a bunch of tales from the old-timey newspapers with things like uh, somebody whose life was uh, really frighteningly close to Final Destination <laughs> and people who are angry about banana peels. You know, fun stuff. Eat the peel. Eat the peel. So you can come on over to the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Link is in the show notes. And you can join us. So um, come and, and get your, uh, your, your holiday listening. Uh, we, or you can actually, I believe you can gift uh, a subscription to somebody if you'd like to do that. If you know. Gift yourself. Gift yourself. You, you deserve it. You've earned it. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, do that. We would love it. And, oh, silly computer. And, um, my brain, my brain has stopped working. There was another thing. Turn us on Facebook? I, I guess so. We barely do anything because, like, we're, we're really bad at the social media. It's hilarious. We love you. Yes, uh, we do. Keep listening. Buy yourself a, a subscription. If you have not, Merry Christmas to you. You deserve it. And, you know, all the other happy Hanukkah to our Jewish listeners. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy holiday. Happy everything. Happy, happy everything. I think that should... Happy everything. It feels very nice to say. I think everybody should say happy everything. Happy everything. And thank you and for listening to our filthy words. Filthy words. The filthy words of two knights of the brazen serpents. Oh. And whatever you do, don't date like 50 women and then leave behind a big mystery. Or do, and don't get murdered. Yeah, sure. There we go. All right. Uh, thank you, and bye. Bye. Bye.